God, it here this morning, Lord, may it be your spirit that uh, fills us, enlightens us, teaches us, guides us, um, leads us to your truth and convicts us, Lord. And I pray and I ask that you would simply move me out of the way and that the words that are spoken would bring you honor and glory both at this moment and forever. Pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, as I said, it's a great opportunity to be here. Um, it's always a, a wonderful pleasure to start out a new year with a group of folks. And if you're like me, with a new year, kind of comes time to stop, pause, reflect, and kind of consider what has gone past, what has the last year been like, what lies ahead. Um, it's also particularly um, cause for pause because we're starting a new decade as well. You know, so it's a little unique. We just finished up the teens and uh, can look back on that heading into the 20s and kind of imagine what all that may look like. Um, so in my own life, it's, it's particularly interesting because tomorrow for me will mark one year at the job that I've been at. Um, so it's a little special um, to be heading into this year. Uh, a year ago, I chose to go into a position as a program director at a group home agency called Ohana Homes, um, which I'm sure I've shared about before as I've been here. I've been working with kids in foster care for several years and been in pastoral ministry prior to that. And uh, a year ago, stepped into it. When I stepped in, into it last year, what I do is help oversee the houses that we have. We serve kids and adults with developmental disabilities, and some of those kids are also in foster care. Um, some of the houses we have, um, there are 10 boys in foster care, or 10 girls in foster care, and then um, other homes with maybe three, four kids or adults with developmental disabilities. So there's a lot of staff, a lot of different needs, a lot of things that have come up. When I started last year, we were opening up our sixth house, house number six in January. Tomorrow we'll be opening up house number 11. So it has been a busy year. That's thanks to my friend and owner who just loves being, you know, opening things and starting things. And, and so it's just been a whirlwind, um, opening up six houses in a year, house every other month. I get to be over the staffing, so you can imagine constantly interviewing. If you know someone that needs a job, sending my way because <laughs> we're always hiring. Um, so it's been busy, and as I reflect and consider, um, there's a lot of things that I was excited about. Um, it's kind of one of those things you, as you get into something, you don't realize, too, maybe some of the expectations that you had. Um, and there's been certainly great joys, um, breakthroughs, things where God is evidently at work. But then there's obviously been challenges, and I'll you know, be forthright and honest. There's been things that I've done where I've thought, man, I went to seminary and I'm, I'm doing this thing, or is this really where I'm supposed to be? Um, and that doesn't help when my wife says, yeah, I don't know if this is what you should be doing. <laughs> and I'll, as I reflect, there's, there's been moments where I've thought, you know, these circumstances have dictated or they've determined my response to how I've interacted with God. And and I don't know what the year's been like for you, if it was everything that you expected, um, if it went, you know, everything was great and wonderful, or if there were some challenges or some difficulties or some loss. Uh, but, I, but I can at least admit, and as we enter this new year, this is a great passage, because for me, it's, the reality is that Jesus is king, regardless of the circumstance or the situation, and my response is to worship him for who he is. And, and I can say that I've been guilty of not doing that at times in the last year and 
you know, me and Jesus had some good walks together and I had some good conviction about that and, you know, just wrestling with that reality. Um, and so as we, you know, look at this passage, that will be one element of the significance of worship, right? We are called to give God the worth and the value which he deserves simply for being who he is. And we see that in this story this morning that Jesus doesn't do anything. Um, he's not saying anything. He's not, you know, performing miracles. He's a baby or a young child. Um, you know, we're not exactly sure of the age and everything, but yet he's going and being worshiped for who he is. And so for me and for us, how do we enter a year, you know, recognizing and doing that, um, worshiping God uh, for simply because he is God. He is the one who's given us our breath, our life, our redemption. And then as I reflect on the last 10 years, um, there's a lot of moments or a lot of big events actually that have happened. Um, for my wife and I, uh, we celebrated, we're at 12 years of marriage, so we got to celebrate a decade of marriage, but we also got to celebrate big events in the birth of our four boys. So we have a nine-year-old, a eight, yes, eight-year-old, you know, there's so many, uh, <laughs> eight, six, and four. So those are big events, right? I got to graduate from seminary, start jobs. There's been big things that have happened. Uh, but as I reflect and consider, you know, it's the, it's the moments, it's the daily things that we do that is what makes me a, a husband or what makes me a father, you know, and those are the things that as I enter a new year, enter a new decade, um, things that I've been reading, reflecting on, I think I've been challenged by God to say, where are my habits at? You know, so in correlation of, am I choosing to give God the worth and the value that he deserves? And then how are the things that I do on a daily basis, um, how do they, you know, draw me to do those things? And it doesn't have to be grandiose, they can be small, and so we'll look at some of that here uh, this morning as well, just maybe some simple habits that we can develop. So worship and habits here this morning. We'll look at the story. I think in the story itself, it is declaring that Jesus is king, right? I mean, we, we're seeing the pictures of, you know, the wise men. It's on the bulletin. They are traveling specifically for a purpose to worship and to declare the lordship, the kingship of Jesus. So we'll look at how that's talked about in the story here this morning. We'll look at the responses of kind of those, the main characters, of Herod, who is a king, and then of the wise men, the magi, and who are these strangers, these foreigners, these Gentiles, and what their response is to the reality of Jesus as king. And then ultimately, we'll close with what is our response? So how do you and I respond to this fact, or this reality? What are the things that we can do in our lives? Again, what are the, the habits um, that we'll develop? I'll share with you a little bit from a book um, that I've read in the last year um, that has some, you know, small little pointers, helpers that says, here's maybe some things we can do. You can check out more of that book later if you want. Um, so the first portion is Jesus is king, right, which isn't necessarily a popular thing that is said, spoke about. I think Jesus is savior, um, you know, for me, my own life, I loved it. Jesus saves me, I'm forgiven, great. But the reality of Jesus being king then means that he desires for me to love him with all areas of my life, all of my heart, my mind, my soul, and my body. And so this passage is a declaring 
Matthew is writing is this is the reality, that this young child is a king. And so there's three areas that he gives us that, that confirm this. One is through prophecy. Um, one is through the, the star and the cosmos and creation itself. And then the other is through the actual act of worship um, by the magi um, to recognize that Jesus is king. And so for us, we might be able to make this declaration. It may be something we're familiar with. Um, but to go and to worship a, you know, a human being in a Jewish tradition who Matthew is writing to, that, that wasn't custom, right? I mean, we are to worship God alone, not have any false images. And so he is starting out here in the second chapter with big proclamation of this is not an ordinary person. Right, that this young child is deserving right, of our worship. And how he does that is he's looking back at the Word of God, uh, which is, has a high reference in saying, hey, the prophet Micah right, it declared this long ago. Micah, who lived 700 years before Jesus, wrote that the Messiah, the king, would come out of the city of Bethlehem. I mean, even to this day, if you go to Bethlehem, it's not anything like, you know, grand or spectacular. I mean, there are, you know, the churches there for, for those of us that are Christian that make it spectacular and special, but it's, it's really a small place. Um, it's pretty humble, and so Micah is making this declaration. Um, it's so humble, in fact, that the, the Magi themselves don't even consider to go there. They go to the main city of Jerusalem where they would expect a king to be. So the fact that a, a king is being born in this humble place that is proclaimed 700 years before um, is, again, a, a factual thing of, hey, this is the one who is to come, right? This is the one now, the fulfillment of prophecy has been had. And Matthew, as a, you know, writing to his Jew Jewish audience, is making that declaration as well to align with this is the one that comes from the line of David, right? Comes from where David has come out of. And so Matthew will continue um, to make points that point to Jesus as king. Um, say, hey, go back, look, look at the Old Testament, look at the prophets. Um, he'll continue to make reference to that. Um, because from a Jewish perspective, this is a big deal. They've been waiting and anticipating. They're in a time and a place where there's, they're feeling oppressed, where they're not have that complete freedom, and they've been waiting and longing for a king to come who would set them free, right? Maybe not in the way that they would have imagined, right? from the bondage of, sin, of, of their own sin. Uh, they were more hoping in a different way, but yet here it is, coming humbly and being born in Bethlehem. And then we have the star. And this star, I've tried to do some research. If you are, you know, an astrologer or love this stuff, please, you know, tell me things to read because there is no one agreement on what this star is, right? Um... So you have these magi from the east who see this star, and, and there are various thoughts to it. Is it Halley's Comet that they saw? Was it a, you know, different planets aligning to look like a star? You know, I think it was like Venus and Jupiter, or however the alignment might be. Um, was it a supernova that emerged? Um, there isn't, you know, from what I know, an agreement. So if you have a factual or some good, good reads for me, let me know. But for me, as I see this, um, Psalm 19 um, came to mind. Actually, I was driving here, and I was thinking about the star, and they talked about it on the radio, and, it's, and it begins as the heavens declare your wonder. And it's this short psalm of just the, how 
the cosmos, the stars, the sky, the earth is a declaration of, again, God as king, of his reality. And whatever this star was, whether it was an alignment of planets, a comet, a supernova, something instilled, it is there as a sign, as a pointer, again, to the one who has come, right? And so, so God is using, right, Scripture from 700 years prior to say it's been fulfilled. He is intervening in some way using the cosmos, the universe, the galaxy to say, this is my son, this is the king who has come, right, and declare his worth and his value. And ultimately then we see the actual act of worship, right, by the Magi. And, because, and it's simple. They, they see, they go, and they worship. And I love that Matthew is beginning um, in challenging his audience and saying, you have this, these Gentiles who have come and worship, that this king isn't isolated and isn't just for you know, one particular group, but this is a king of all the earth, for all the people, of all the universe, and we are to go and bring him worth and value. Again, within the, the historical context from a Jewish perspective, you, this is unordinary. You're not going and worshiping um, another human being because they aren't God. And yet Matthew is de- making that declaration. We're seeing the worship beginning here. And what I think is interesting, Matthew ends in Matthew 28 with worship as well. That the women who are in the garden and running after seeing um, the resurrected Christ, when they see him, they worship him. When the disciples go up toward Galilee as they were directed by the women, they see him, they fall to his feet, and they worship him, right? And so this act of worship is, is one both for the Jew and the Gentile, for each and every one of us to declare that Jesus is king. And so I think in this story is, is pointing to that, um, again, I love that whatever the age, which is somewhat disputed, um, as I talked about it to a friend, they were really adamant that, hey, those manger scenes with the, the wise men are inaccurate because they came later. Great. I mean, whatever, if that's your thing and you want to get upset about it, that's okay. But it probably, they probably weren't there right at the birth of Jesus. And if that just breaks your heart, I'm sorry. You can leave your manger scene however you like it. But we don't know the exact age. What we know later in Matthew 2 is that um, Herod sends out that all the children in Bethlehem, two years of age and younger, um, are ordered to be killed. So Jesus has got to be between you know, a young infant to a young toddler at some point. But there's nothing in the story, again, other than the fact that he is born. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. It's the one that the star pointed to as a sign that gives him the the reason to be worshipped. So I love that. Again, it's challenging for me to to reflect upon that. Am I living and acting in the same manner? The second uh, piece that this story tells us is how do we respond? And what are the responses in the story? So we have the the main people of Herod and these magi. And so if you know anything about Herod, the story opens and says, okay, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the time of King Herod. If you're not familiar with Herod, Herod was a real big deal at the time. By this point, he had been reigning and ruling for roughly 40 years. So if 
you knew, if you're just first hearing this story or reading it, I mean, you knew who Herod was. If you go to Israel today, my wife and I had a chance to live there for a year, and anywhere we traveled, whether you go up north, whether you're in the center in Jerusalem, whether you go south, everywhere is marked by Herod. We literally had a tour guide once tell us, if Herod wasn't around, I wouldn't have a job. Like, because he was, he was called Herod the Great, because he spent the time building these magnificent buildings. Um, the temple and the Temple Mount today, um, its foundation is still there in remnants of that, of these huge, I mean, enormous stones because of Herod. Um, if you go down by the, sea, um, the Dead Sea, there's a place called Masada where, you know, Herod built these fortresses and these kind of getaways, um, and they're just massive, and they, they've existed for over 2,000 years. Um, even, it wasn't discovered for a long time, there was this big dirt mound, um, you know, south of Jerusalem. And eventually, someone kept saying, that looks a little, it looks a little unnatural, you know. And they went and they discovered Herod basically built himself this tiny little town to where he could be buried. It was just this big mound. And you could go today and it's, you can start at the top and it's just this, you know, complex structure um, where it's fully equipped. So he's from his getaways by the ocean to the Dead Sea to the Temple Mount. I mean, this guy is all over the place. Um, but also about him, he was great, but he was also a little paranoid. Uh, he was also a bit destructive. If you were part of his family, that wasn't a good thing. He had wives that he had tried and murdered, um, he had others in his family that he did the same. When he got toward the end of his life, he wrote not one, not two, not three different wills, but six different wills of who was going to inherit his throne. Um, he would write a will, and then one of his sons would try to rise up against him, and he goes, okay, and then he would have him tried and executed. And so this guy was nasty, right? Like he just, he had the power, he had the might, um, he had the resources, but if you crossed him, you know, it's like a good Netflix ser series or something, like he would get you. And so you didn't want to cross his path. Uh, but he was able to bring, again, why he was able to do these things is because, you know, he was manipulative, um, he was decisive, he was nasty, but through that he was able to kind of control the chaos of the day. Like I said, many many revolts, many zealots, and he was able to kind of quelch that and somewhat keep a peace within a region that even today, you know, is very hostile. Um, and so that's why he's known as, as Herod the Great. And so when we see and read his responses, then it shouldn't be a surprise. When, when the Magi come and they go to Jerusalem, the city they expect a king to be born in, and they say, hey, we're here to worship the king of the Jews, we saw his star and traveled a long distance, and now we're here. He hears it, Herod hears it, and what? Is he happy? Is he overjoyed? He's disturbed, right? And it says he's disturbed, and who with him is disturbed? All of Jerusalem with him, right? Because it's kind of like that crazy boss that you have when they're upset. You don't want to be in their path because you know you didn't necessarily have to do anything, but if they're having a bad day, it means you're going to be having a bad day, right? 
And that's Herod. <clears throat> People knew if Herod is upset and disturbed, great. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how he's going to take this out on the city of Jerusalem. And so, yeah, um, it's not good news. He is not happy about this because he, again, is set on preserving his throne, um, his power, and his wealth. And so what does he do then? He is manipulative, right? He gathers information. And it could seem like, oh, sweet Herod is gathering information. He wants to know where this Messiah, this king is being born. But we'll see later. He just wants the information so, again, he can quelch and stop whoever, whoever it is. Even a small child is a potential threat to his throne. And so he gets the information. He calls the scribes and the chief priests, those that knew uh, what we would call the Old Testament, and they confirm and say, yeah. You know, Micah clearly declares, we know, we're in agreement Again, further affirmation that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, right? Okay. Then he says, let's have a secret meeting. Let me bring these wise men in, uh, these guys that have traveled all this way. And they say, hey, can you tell me the time that you saw the star? Right? He's gathering his intel to figure out how old this child is. Is he an immediate threat? Um, has he aged? And I would say that he, based on what they said and based on what we see later, he probably determines, and not an immediate threat, young child, why don't you guys go, worship him, then come back and let me know where he's at. And he says, so I can go and worship him too, right? So just in good fashion, someone who's paranoid, manipulative, saying, tells you what you want to hear um, so he can get his way. And so, and the other thing that we see of Herod is that he has no intention, right, of worshiping Jesus. Um, he's not gathering that information. We see it based on his history and his four decades of, rule, of his reign and rulership is he wants this guy out. And so I'm challenged by that. I read a commentary that said, you know, we can make that declaration of lordship, but we need to search our hearts because there's a little bit of Herod um, in each and every one of us, right? Whether we're desirous of like the rule or the power or we you know, want to get rid of those that maybe be a threat to us. But ultimately, he says that's a, that's a pointer that, you know, when it comes to Jesus genuinely ruling in our hearts, um, there's a portion of us that wants to, to resist that. Um, and so we need to let the Spirit of God examine us and say, okay, where's the little bit of Herod within me? And his life is an example that we'll look at, that it's not just, you know, you don't get that way um, just because no reason, right? It's all the small little habits, the daily things that um, culminate and compound over decades for Herod to just have this hardness of heart, right? And so it's, a, I think, a warning to us, like we cannot be like the Herod. We can't let another year or another decade go by where we you know, choose to do things our own way or um, live in a manner that is contrary to the reality of Jesus as our king. Uh, the other responses that we see is, is the magi, right? We don't get a name. We don't get much description of it. We, we've been seeing photos where there's three of them. That's on your bulletin, but we don't even get that. We don't know the number. Generally, it's held that there are three because there are three gifts, but there's not much information on these guys. Uh, magi, wise men, most would agree that they are astrologers. Um, they are men that were looking up at the stars, and somehow they knew that there would be a sign as a declaration for a 
this Jewish king. And then their, their actions are simple and yet extremely profound. They see the star, they go, and they're obedient. Um, they follow it, right? And they, they follow to Jerusalem, and when they find out the king isn't there, the star appears again. This is what is mysterious to me about the star, is because Jerusalem to Bethlehem is about six miles. I don't know how something like a star tells you that much specifics. I mean, that's like from here to the Mayo Clinic. I don't know, if you look in the night sky, how it would direct you. I would just be like, I guess I'm close enough. Like, I don't know. But they are overjoyed, right, when they see this star after meeting with Herod, and they go and they bow down. They see this young child, and they don't say anything. They just prostrate and worship, and they present their gifts. And there's a lot of different ideas of what the gifts mean, but the gifts are expensive. And the gifts are fit for a king. And they're presented to Jesus. And so, again, what, how are you and I going to respond? Are we going to respond like Herod? Or are we going to respond like these strangers, these foreigners, you know, these outsiders, and be included and just simply recognize Jesus as, as king? And then lastly, what is that response? Like I said, it's, it's worship and habits. There's a book. Um, as a practical note that you could look up if you wanted to get, it's called Atomic Habits um, by a, a gentleman named James Clear. There's a lot of free stuff online. Um, he does newsletters and blogs. Um, so if you're interested, YouTube. But he, he wrote a book, and his idea is that it's all the, those small things that over time really compound um, and multiply and give us the big results. And so he says, if we just do the small things each and every day and improve by 1%. He says at the end of next year, we'll be actually 37% better. But if we don't do anything, we'll just be on this decline to almost zero. And so it's a great book. It's a great challenge to consider, you know, what are those small things that I do, those daily habits, and how do they orient me um, to the reality of Jesus? He has a couple different things. He says there's layers of behavior change. Generally, we get to a new year, we want to have these big outcome-type goals, like I want to lose weight, or I want to have a lot of money, or I want this or that. But he says we fail often um, by our systems or the process that we put in place, right? And so everybody, he says, you know, all the teams in the NFL playoffs, they all started and they wanted to win, right? But what are the processes that they had in place um, to do that? Uh, and then ultimately, he says, it's really about who we are. And this is why I like this book. He's not writing as an overt Christian or anything like that, but he says ultimately our habits are a result of our identity. And an example he gives, he says if we want to quit smoking, right, that might be the outcome. We could put a process in, maybe use patches. But he says ultimately when we're presented with the option to smoke and we say, no, I'm trying to quit, he says, again, that's an outcome-based. Versus an identity-based, he says, when presented with that option, you would say, no, I'm not a smoker, right? So it's just simple, but I think that relates and correlates with us. Like, what are the things we do in life that challenge our identity? My identity as a, as a child of God, as one who is beloved and holy, or do I do things because, like, I'm in fear or I'm not recognizing my true identity? Um, and then he gives us what's called four laws of behavior change. And so if you want to do something... He says, to do it in two minutes or less, right? I think for me, being a Christian, I've often thought, man, you read of these guys, Martin Luther or others, they've spent hours in prayer, 
and I just want to do the same. It's like, no, two minutes. Take it and do it in two minutes. And he says, that's how the habit's going to be developed. You just got to get it started. And once you get going, um, then you can work on doing it longer. But often, because we have these ambitious habits, we, we either fail to do them or fail to achieve them, and then we just kind of forget about them, right? And so he gives us these laws of behavior change. He says, make it obvious. And so if we want to be people that are more prayerful or more kind or get into God's word more, he says, put a Bible out on your kitchen table where you go or where you're making coffee. Make it really obvious. Okay, there's the Bible. Take a minute, two minutes, you know, read a chapter. Um, or take a minute, he gives a coffee illustration. He uses meditation, but you could pray. I mean, he says, what are the things you're already doing? You already get up in the morning. You already brush your teeth. You already take a shower. So how do you incorporate things that, again, orient our hearts to the identity of who we are and the reality of who Jesus is? Um, he says, make the habit attractive. He says, often we go and do habits because we're trying to, to please a craving we have, a desire, a longing to be recognized or loved. We get those notifications on our phone. And he says, really examine those and what are the longings that we can do that can point us to God. He says, make it easy. Again, that's what I love about this. It's like, just do it, right? Just make it really simple. Make it really easy. It doesn't have to be complex um, to get it started. And then ultimately, make it satisfying. He says, a lot of habits, a lot of things don't continue because, you know, we'll go to the gym and a few times, but then we don't lose all that weight. Right? Or we'll save for a little bit, but then it takes a long time to see, again, that big difference. And so he says, how do you incorporate ways that are satisfying now? Um, use a habit tracker. Create a streak. Um, have a partner. Something, again, that allows you to envision, you know, if I do this, I can see this into the future. Um, and I love this because I think we're people that aren't just living for today or next year or the next decade but ultimately there are people who are living into eternity. And so the things and the small habits we do now will have a huge impact um, in formation of who we, who we are, who we're becoming um, into eternity. And so, again, James Clear, Atomic Habits, if that's helpful for you. But my hope here is that, you know, this, this morning, in the year 2020, in the decade of the 20s and in beyond, um, that we would be people who worship God for who he is, and that we would do the daily, small, two-minute or less things um, that help orient our hearts to that. So let us pray. God, thank you that you are who you are, um, that you are good, loving, faithful, um, holy, and God, that you deserve our worship, um, that we wouldn't be here without you, um, that our existence relies on you, Lord, our forgiveness, our redemption, and so help us to be people who do the small things, um, turn our hearts to you each and every day in a small little habit um, so that you deserve, get the praise and the worship that you deserve. Uh, we love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. We respond by singing together, What Child Is This? <laughs>